A reading from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthian church, chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. We'll repeat the reading from last week. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified of God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as in Adam all die, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to the God the Father, after He has destroyed every ruler and every authority and every power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. 
But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under Him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those people do who receive baptism on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And why are we putting ourselves in danger every hour? I die every day. That is as certain, brothers and sisters, as my boasting of you, a boast that I make in Christ Jesus our Lord. If with merely human hopes I fought with wild animals at Ephesus, what would I have gained by it? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good mortals. Morals. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As I was reading this text this week, it seemed to me that it would be important for us to remember what Paul set for us as the first things of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He was raised. And all of that according to the Scriptures. Paul said to us last week, that is what comes first. Above everything else, we must hold on to that. That is the bedrock of our existence in the church. It is what makes us Christian. It is what makes us followers of Christ, for we cannot follow a dead man. We may follow a dead man's teachings. We may look to a dead man for guidance, but we cannot pray to, we cannot follow, we cannot love a dead man. And surely a dead man cannot give us faith. So Paul would say to us today, have you faith that he has been raised? As I read this text and I read the line that if Christ has not been raised, then Paul's preaching was in vain and that my faith is in vain. My faith. Can you say that for me? Pat yourself on your chest and say it. My faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, why are you here? Why in the world would the Holy Spirit lead you to say, I want to go to church Sunday. I'm going to pick Adna, where I'll be confronted with the resurrection of Jesus. If you don't want to believe it, if you refuse to believe it, if you don't believe it, what purpose does God have to bring you here except to give you the chance, the opportunity to believe it? As I thought about that word, vain, an image popped into my mind of a vase of dead flowers sitting on a vanity. Not a bathroom vanity. The bathroom vanity was given that name from something else. A makeup table. Remember those? You can still buy one on walmart.com. And if you don't know what it is, Google it when you get home. But there were these tables that had drawers about yay high on either side of a bench that you sat in and a mirror in front of it so that 
women could put on their makeup, right? Put their face on, as my grandmother used to say. They became to be called vanities because the putting on of the face is a vain act. Isn't it? I mean, that's why I pluck my ear hairs because I'm vain. I can't have my ear hairs bringing all this beauty down. Right? So I got to get them jokers out of there. And I go to the vanity in the bathroom in the big mirror with my reading glasses on and a little flashlight and I get them. Man, if you ain't plucking your ear hairs, that's nasty. Vanity is deep in us. That image popped into my mind of dead flowers sitting on a vanity and I kind of wrestled with that. I said, what in the world am I thinking about that for? I said, I don't know, but that's a better sermon title than I usually have. Dead flowers on a vanity. And as I began thinking about it, it kind of came to light for me why that image formed in my mind, but I'm not going to share that with you right now because that's at the end of the sermon. But I want to share with you something else that I thought about with vanity. Remember several years ago, it might have been decades ago, I probably should have looked it up, Al Pacino and Kuno Reeves made a movie together. And every movie Kuno Reeves is in, he goes, whoa. Have you ever noticed that? That's his signature line. In this movie, he played a lawyer. And Al Pacino played the devil. Remember that movie? Called The Devil's Advocate? You might remember that the devil was tempting Kuno Reeves' character with fame and fortune. That he would be widespread known as an attorney. Remember that? And at the very end, that character escapes the devil's hold by refusing to do what he wanted him to do, and he killed himself. And poof, he's alive again because it was all a trick the devil was playing on him. And Kuno Reeves is walking down a staircase and passes the devil on the staircase. And Kuno Reeves has won his case and Al Pacino looked at him and said, good job today or something like that. And Kuno Reeves just smiles. And the devil looks at the camera and said, vanity is my favorite sin. Vanity must be the devil's favorite sin. Remember when Eve had the fruit? She's at the tree and the devil whispered to her, oh, you won't die, you'll just be like God. And she said, oh, that sounds good to me. That's vanity, it's pride. And then I saw where Pope Francis had said something about vanity. He said this, an example I use to illustrate the beauty of vanity is this. Look at the peacock. Everybody know what a peacock is? They're not ugly, right? Okay. Look at the peacock. It's beautiful if you look at it from the front. But if you look at it from behind, you discover the truth. Y'all with me? That's funny. You discover the truth. That's true about people too, isn't it? Very often the vainest of people that we meet, when we look at them from the front, we see one thing, but when we get behind them, we can see the ugliness. And we're all guilty of that. Every one of us puts on our best flavor for everybody we're in contact with. We want people to think better of us than we really are. I wish my life was as good as it looks on Facebook. Know what I mean? Pope Francis said... Look at a peacock. It's beautiful if you look at it from the front, but if you look at it from behind, you discover the truth. Whoever gives into such self-absorbed vanity 
has huge misery hiding inside them. I thought about dead flowers on my great-grandmother's vanity. How odd is that? I could see it in my mind. It's sitting in my brother's house right now, in his bedroom. And I could see that thing as if I saw it in her house for the last time, and it's dusty and unused. Because she's dead, and has been dead for a very long time. What does it mean to be vain? It means to have an excessively high opinion of our appearance, of our abilities, or our worth. But as a characteristic, as Paul is using it, it means that something is empty, that it's useless. And that it's futile. You ready for me to tie the roses and the vanity together? Here it comes. It's going to be good. Valentine's Day. They martyred St. Valentine. They were brutal to him. We celebrate it with chocolates. Y'all know that, right? And Hallmark cards. I'm pretty sure that the confectioners, the florists, and the greeting card people invented Halloween or Valentine's Day. One particular Valentine's Day, this person I knew who may or may not be me, this forlorn, love-tied little teenager, decided I would get my girlfriend a dozen roses. I'm glad I didn't marry that girl. Y'all hear me? I took them to her house on Valentine's Day. Now you, you think with me, 16 and a half, 17 year old boy. That sounds like a good move, right? She yelled at me, said ugly things to me, threw them things at me and said, all they're going to do is die. You wasted money on that? I'm like, wait a minute. In the man handbook, it said bring flowers. <laughs> right, guys? If you made her mad, order this bouquet. And I was confused and didn't know what to do, but she was teaching me something. That seeing value in something like that instead of the relationship makes the relationship vain. If we think that we can prod somebody into emotions or feeling about us the way that we want them to feel by giving them something, it needs to be something that has some kind of lasting quality and not roses that will die in the vase. Now, as long as I live, I won't forget how disappointed I was standing there with broken roses in my arms and wondering if we were still going to Pizza Hut or not. <laughs> Vanity. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. It leads us to think that there's value and how much something costs. It leads us to think that there's value or something that we can move somebody with just because it's pretty. And we put all our hopes in something that's just going to pass away. Is there anything more useless than a cut flower? It can't propagate itself. It can't live out its God-designed purpose of bearing seed. It can't feed the hummingbird or the bee. It's stripped of purpose. 
And so are we when we lose faith in the resurrection of Jesus. Now when Paul said that if we don't believe the resurrection of the dead, then our faith is in vain, this comes to the makeup table. Paul uses the word necros, which means corpse. Paul's not talking here about when we die, our spirit is resurrected and goes off to heaven forever. He's talking about the dead body laying at the funeral home. You know, the one where we all walk up to and say, doesn't she look pretty? And we all just want to say, no, she looks dead. The necros, Paul says, is raised. The dead body of Jesus is raised. And for some reason, I think God wanted me to think about that vanity so that I could realize that all those days and hours and minutes and whatever time my great-grandmother sat there painting herself, it did her no eventual good for she still died. And we can't cover up that reality that every day we are wasting away. As the philosophers have said, every day we die. And the only thing that can change that is the resurrection of Jesus. The only way we can have any hope that this whole life is not vain and futile, that this whole life is not dead flowers and a dusty, abandoned vanity, is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There is nothing else that will give this life hope. And Paul wants this, these church, that church in Corinth and the church at Adna to wrestle with that. And to ask ourselves, do we really believe this? The social teachings of Jesus are important. The ethical teachings of Jesus are important. But without the resurrection of Jesus, they have no power at all. They mean nothing. Without the resurrection of Jesus, every word I preach is preached straight into death. Just vain hope. Like dead flowers on a dusty vanity where a woman used to sit and put her face on so she could face the world. There must be a greater hope than material objects and a pretty appearance. Last week I told you that people can hear all kinds of good things about you and not believe them. But if someone tells you one bad thing about you, they will believe it. It's because of the skepticism that vanity creates in us. Because we long to be better than the one that we're hearing the rumor about, we receive the rumor as truth. Because then we can say, at least I'm not as bad as David. Vanity draws us into a skepticism that allows us to believe that Peter and James and John were nothing more than leisure, shoot, dre- leisure suit dressed preachers flashing their big white teeth on the camera and smiling and selling us a bill of goods so they can have more power, praise, money, and adoration. 
But I wonder if you caught the end of what Paul said where he said, Did I fight animals in Ephesus for a lie? Every day I face danger. Why would I do that if it's not true? Ask yourself, why would Peter, James, and John, and all the rest of them abandon their families and their lives to go off into the nether regions of the world, into backwater places that meant nothing to them, to preach a dead man? Who would do that? Who would put themselves in mortal danger for dead flowers and a dusty vanity, for nothing that matters, for something that's just a lie? Who would forfeit their life for that? Who would risk being put to death the same way Jesus was put to death? By preaching Jesus raised. Put yourself in their shoes. If tomorrow Christianity were decreed illegal and punishable by death, would you show up to church? And if you would, what would be the sense in that risk if it's not true? Surely there must be more than vanity. Surely there must be more And the only thing that can overcome it is belief in the resurrection of Jesus. If Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain. There is no gospel, there's no good news. All there is is dust and death and everything is vain and all in life is futile. And slowly coming to nothing. I don't know about you, but I see too much beauty in the world to believe that. And sea pigs and pigs swimming in the sea. I want to share with you the conclusion of an article that a woman named Carla Works wrote. She writes, For God to defeat death is the signal that God has defeated the power of sin... God's resurrection of Jesus is the surety, the first fruit that God will defeat the powers of death and sin for all creation. It is the decisive act that has determined God's ultimate victory. In an age where many churches are experiencing decline in attendance, some have intentionally decided to share only portions of the gospel that are seeker-friendly, she puts in quotations. In other words, advice that sounds like wise counsel for living, like being kind to one another and living peaceably. While these are worthy goals, the gospel demands more. And she's right. It does demand more than that. It demands that we stand together here in this place and say that Christ is raised. It demands that we say that though He is dead, yet He lives. She goes on, At the core of the Gospel is a God who refuses to abandon creation to the corrupting powers of sin and death. This is a God of life. And that is good news indeed. 
Christ is risen. Christ has defeated sin and death. If we have faith in Him, we are those people in Romans 10 that Paul speaks about when he says that if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And what will you be saved from? From your life resulting in nothing more than dead flowers and dust on the vanity of your hopes in everything else in the world. You can have life True life. Abundant life. Life in Jesus is not based on what you have or what you look like. But based in who you are becoming in Christ. A holy and happy witness to the good news that Jesus is raised from the dead. So dear ones, I give you a chance to respond to that news. A simple yes or no will suffice. Don't be sheepish. Don't mutter the word. But speak it like it means something. If your answer is no, then say it with conviction. If your answer is yes, say it with equal conviction. I ask you this, church. Is Jesus Christ raised from the dead? Is Jesus Christ raised from the dead? That is the good news that you bear into the world. That all is not dead flowers and dusty vanity. That ours is not a vain hope. That ours is a sure and certain hope of eternal life. That's the word you are to carry into the world. Amen.